I'm looking forward uh, to the to the debate because uh, just let me make a brief, not really political, but generally political statement. You know why people ask me why are you making all these crazy things, Trump and so on? My first, my my big problem is this one. It may sound compromised or whatever. I would like to see some real change. I'm sick and tired of the leftists who play principal, principal leftists, and then the most that they do is some big public event where they, oh, one million people on, on Tahrir Square here and there. And then, again, it's my old joke, I know, but after the event, they write excellent analysis of why the event had to fail and so on and so on, you know. Like, I, I'm more and more convinced this is a slight uh, stab, critical point about my friend Alain Badiou, that the true event is after the event. Forget the big thing. What fascinates me more and more is, okay, the big orgy we all cry there is over. Things return to normal. How do ordinary people feel the difference there? In their daily practices and so on and so on. Here, although I was very critical about 68 May Paris and so on, I must say something that the way we are no longer permitted, and this is good censorship, to talk <coughs> in this standard male chauvinist way, making fun of gays, making fun of women, and so on and so on. This is, I'm quite respectful here, this is a result of 68. Something did change in the public discourse. And this is for me... <coughs> When people ask me, are you a historicist or not? Usually, right-wingers ask me this question, you know, this simplistic view. You postmodern historicist, you think everything is historically conditioned, relative, and so on and so on. I say, no. The true measure of historicity is, for me, not everything changes, but when something becomes impossible when you no longer can do it. For example, and that's why it's so sad what happened in the last couple of years, uh, when you cannot any longer talk in a certain way about women or making fun of gay people and so on and so on, or when, when was it? But it was all the time after World War II where, at least publicly, and I'm always a partisan of hypocrisy, pretend and something will come out of it when torture is prohibited, in the sense that you cannot publicly advocate it. Now, you know why I'm mentioning this? Because today we can. We silently reasserted in a more or less public way the the legitimacy of uh, the legitimacy of torture. On the other hand, the best way to detect historical changes is, I think, maybe I will write a text on it. Is precisely to approach things consciously in an anachronistic way. Then you see the absurdity. For example. Uh, 
when the United States is now fighting Mexican drug cartels and so on and so on, you know. I am always, sorry for this old example known to all of you, but I checked it up in some history books. It's really a depressive story. The so-called opium wars, you know, 1840s, they began earlier. You know how it looked? It's really a sad story. From 1810-20, the British were massively selling opium to China, to the mainland. And Emperor, at that point, who was a relatively good guy, was absolutely desperate. He saw that there really tens of millions become drug addicts, ruined the nation, and he did all these public pathetic thing, things possible. He, uh, uh, he wrote, when, at the very beginning of her reign, this dragged on for decades, he wrote a quite pathetic public letter to Queen Victoria, like you as a good Christian, don't you see what your merchants are doing, and so on and so on. Absolutely to no avail, nothing. Just to give you an idea, do you know that in 1820s, China was still by far, not per capita, okay, England was better, but in absolute amount, by far the strongest economy in the world. It was not inert in decay and so on. Then you know the story. The big Western powers, England, France, Germany, blah, blah, attacked China with free trade justification, claiming to put it simply, but they did put it in exactly these terms, that uh, free trade is the basis of civilization. If a nation puts a limit on free trade, and the only thing that the Chinese did is to prohibit import of opium from British India. That if you, if you do this, then you regress into barbarism, you exclude yourself from civilized nations. So China should be re-civilized again, and so on and so on. And the result was also an immense social and economic catastrophe. In those 20 years, when the war dragged on again and again, as far as we can measure it today through statistics, what's available, China, China's, how would we call it, brutto national product in today's terms, was halved, one half. It was, ah, so devastating. So what's my idea here? That's my dream. Maybe they should do a Hollywood movie or what. That... Uh, now that the United States attack all the time Mexican cartels and so on, Mexico and, what, and who is which, Colombia should declare war on the United States. That the United States are opposing civilization, free trade, and so on, and what is this? And that would have been the same logic and so on. And it's also so nice to see how to, uh, all the things that even Stalin is, don't be afraid, I'm not in any sense of Stalin. But like, uh, they mention Ukrainian famine, you know, horror and so on, how in Soviet Russia they simply isolated that part where the famine was and they even didn't feel famine in other parts. Well, remember Irish famine. The British did exactly the same there. Not only this, I read the history of it 
You know that in the years of the worst famine, some British English landlords had their, uh, were there growing some, pla- I don't know what, uh, food for not potatoes, of course, for export. And this was going on continuously. The British, no humanitarian action and so on. They simply, they simply, uh, they simply isolated it. So that's my dream. Again, I would really like, I would really like to see this. That on on behalf of civilized relations of among nations, Mexico and uh, Colombia declaring war against the United States for obstructing free trade. But now. Speaking about, uh, uh, yes, a remark, this is just introduction, then we go to serious work. It came to me also, uh, you know, we should take a new look on, at the 20th century and get rid of this, in bad sense, utopian moments, playing with false alternatives. For example... I read, I don't know why, because I saw that one, you can download it on proxy, it's disgusting, anti-Semitic and so on. The official Putin version of Trotsky. Seven or eight one-hour episodes, it's pure anti-Semitism and so on. Trotsky, with the help from Wall Street and Jewish circles, organized, it's disgusting. But uh, then I read some books and came to something you know, this is why I emphasize so much this, how do ordinary people live it, uh, 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 experience life. I, it became so clear to me from reading some historical books why, why Stalin won. Trotsky didn't have a chance. I simplify now the picture. But you know what was basically the situation? Look, 24, 23, 25... Ten years it was pure hell for Russian population from the standpoint of everyday calm life. War, world war, civil war, and so on and so on. And then uh, after this relative stabilization, the uh, civil war is over, Bolsheviks won, and then uh, also it was clear that there will be no European revolution. So... What Stalin did, it was quite ingenious. He wasn't yet radical there. He was more more with Bukharin. He said, okay, ten years of hell, let's bring a little bit of normality. We need... That was... That's what meant for Stalin socialism in one country. Let's stop playing this permanent state of emergency. Let's have a return to some normal life, stabilization, and so on and so on. Of course, this was immensely popular after 10 years of hell. And then Trotsky, the idiot, comes and says, no permanent revolution, why don't we get some more suffering, and so on. Don't underestimate Stalin. It wasn't, you absolutely, you don't need any of this dark plotting, whatever, torture, and so on. Stalin, not even, it's not even very intelligent, but in just this cunning, almost, you know, ordinary farmers can be tricky, cunning in this way. Got it. What people want. They want that peace, a minimum of normalization of daily life. And in their eyes, Trotsky meant, oh my God, civil war, revolution, the same thing will go on. 
That's how ordinary people understood it. It was said. Now, before I go, and I will do exactly what I promised, two ideas, maybe it will be interesting for you, uh, 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 came to me how we should maybe critically reread some proposals of Marx today. Two things are usually mentioned here. The first one is that... Uh, Already in Marx you find it, this rather naive, I think it should be rejected, distinction between lower state of communism, where, to cut a long story short, the law of value still holds, it will just be done in a just way. Every worker will get the equivalent of his, her, their contribution. And then, in higher stage, Communism, it is. That famous formula which incidentally is taken from Christianity, you know. Uh, uh, to uh, each to his uh, uh, abilities, each gives to society. To his. But what I want to say is this. The usual perception of this is, okay, we can imagine lower stage somehow, but higher stage communism is a true utopia. No, I think that already the lower stage is the true utopia. It's much more difficult than some kind of communism. The, because uh, just imagine, okay, I don't want to bore you with quotes, but Marx basically imagines some kind of, I don't care. But if you just try to imagine it, it must be, a, if it's not market, it must be a mega bureaucratic apparatus where which records what you do your work and gives you some money which will no longer be the fetish money but some kind of confirmation you did so much to the society and you get then this to get to be properly paid I, I never got it how, how this was even meant to be done I can only imagine it like Lenin imagined it in his uh, state and revolution as radical egalitarianism. Because the, there at least it would have functioned. We are here, I don't know, 80 people, each of you gets, and then you can relativize it if you have a family with three children, you get more. But the moment you start to make it more complex, like you are a manager, an engineer, who would measure this? How? I think this is the true utopia. Uh, the second thing that I think uh, 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 Marx uh, uh, should be a little bit corrected, you know that famous realist passage in Capital 3, when Marx renounces his youthful utopia in German ideology where Marx says in communism the, 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 the very gap that separates freedom from work necessity will disappear Free, uh, 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 work itself will become pleasure and all that. Marx says here that the realm of freedom is forever separated from the realm of necessity. Realm of necessity is work to produce basic goods so that a society can survive. And again, freedom begins beyond it. 
I think if history teaches us of anything, it's that exactly the opposite is, is true. What it all depends, what do you mean by freedom? If you mean by freedom, actual freedom, you gain it only through discipline, work, and so on and so on. I could just imagine what Marx uh, uh, meant by, uh, by his realm of freedom. No, I, 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 again, I think that that's another debate going on here. You know that Auschwitz inscription, uh, Arbeit macht frei. There are two ways to read it. One is as cynical appropriation of something which is basically true. The other reading is work really is like Auschwitz slavery. I'm for the first reading. I think Nazis were just ultra cynical there. Arbeit really makes us free. Really free. Freedom is not that you do what you want. Because what do you want? Freedom is to regain a relationship of, precisely, a free relationship towards what you want. If you do what Aristotle put this nicely in his, uh, in his Nicomachean Ethics, where he says that in this sense, animals, they do only what they want. They are much more free than us humans. If you understand freedom as doing what you want. Freedom is never doing what you want. Freedom is precisely freedom to rise above this and so on and so on. But I don't want to get, I'm sorry, lost, uh, lost in this. I just think that if we want to, just to recapitulate my position, if we, and I try to, if we want to talk seriously about communist pros prospects of communism today, and I do, I see not only arguments for, but even an urgency, again, as I always repeat, look at uh, ecological situation, digital control, uh, uh, immigrants, global chaos, and so on and so on. It's absolutely clear to me that you can call it whatever you want, but some kind of transnational global coordination regulation which cannot be left shouldn't be left neither to market nor to state. And the worst combination that we get today is the combination of these two. That's all that I mean by, that I mean by communism and so on, you know. And uh, my point is, uh, my point is how to, how to uh, how to keep this space open. And I'm a pessimist, but okay. I'm sorry for this improvised introduction. Now I warn you, I'm even more ill. I don't know what's happening. So please be ready for <coughs> sorry, one hour of slightly boring theory. As I promised yesterday, I will begin with uh, Jean-Claude Milner. <coughs> it's again a short text published in the journal Crisis and Critique. You can freely download it. It's uh, uh, the last issue dedicated to Lacan, where you also find, I mentioned it yesterday, the text by Adrian Johnston. And here, Miller, Milner, sorry, has a short text entitled Political Considerations About Lacan's Later Work. 
and surprisingly, he begins by a quote from Lacan's seminar on Joyce, Joyce le, le symptom, Joyce symptom. I quote, it's just one line, ne participe à l'histoire que les déportés, puisque l'homme encore, c'est par le corps que on le a. Translation, the only ones to participate in history are the deported. Since man has a body, it is by means of the body that others have him. And then the quote goes on. Joyce a raison. L'histoire n'étant rien de plus qu'une fuite dont ne se raconte que des exodes. Joyce is right. History being nothing more than a flight about which only exodus There are some debates how you make plural of exodus, exoda, or, okay, we'll take the primitive one. Exoduses are told. Of course, end of quote. Lacan refers here to the opposition between flight, wandering around without goal, and exodus, when you wander around but with a final destination in mind, like the Jews in search of a promised land. Flight is the real of history, lawless wandering, and this flight becomes part of narrated history only when it changes into exodus. Milner then applies this opposition to today's immigrants. They wander around and the place where they eventually land is not their chosen destination. They remain flight. It's not exodus. This impossibility to organize their experience into the narrative of an exodus is what makes the immigrant refugees real and as such unbearable. Their bodies, which is often the only thing they possess, are an embarrassment disturbing our peace. We perceive these bodies as a potential threat, as something that demands food and care, that pollutes our land, and so on and so on. Hence, a quote from Milner. The hate the immigrants are subjected to, as well as the necessity of humanitarian pity in order to avoid the only logical consequence that Western political systems should draw explicitly if they were to accept their own real structure. The physical elimination of immigrants as a middle term between verbal pity and factual cruelty, the honorable souls have discovered the virtues of segregation. Since the beginning of 1970s, Lacan considered segregation as the social fact par excellence, racism being but a subcase of that general process. End of quote from Miller. So, now comes my question. How do these wandering intruders relate to proletarians in the Marxist sense? In some leftist circles, the exploding growth of homeless refugees gave rise to the notion of nomadic proletariat. The basic idea is that in today's global world, the main antagonism, or to use Maoist terms, the primary contradiction, is no longer the one between the capitalist ruling class and the proletariat, but between those who are safe beneath the cupola of our so-called civilized world, 
with at least some kind of public order, basic rights, and so on, and those excluded, reduced to bare life. So nomadic proletarians are not simply outside the cupola, but somewhere in between. Their pre-modern, substantial life form is already in ruins, devastated by the impact of global capitalism. But they are not integrated into our safe world uh, beneath the cupola, so that they roam in some in-between netherworld. They are not proletarians in the strict Marxian sense. Paradoxically, when they enter the cupola of developed countries, the ideal of most of them is precisely to become normal exploited proletarians. Recently, I saw an interview uh, when a refugee from El Salvador who wanted to enter the uh, United States, still on the Mexican side, uh, said to the TV cameras, please, Mr. Trump, let us in. We just want to be good, hard workers in your country. So I like this paradox. This is not proletarians who wanted to get rid of their chains. This is people coming from out that said, please allow us to be good proletarians. No. Uh, sorry, uh, I think I... Ah, uh, 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 yes. So, uh, can, can the distinction between proletarians proper, exploited workers, and the nomadic, less than proletarians, be somehow blurred in a new, more encompassing category of today's proletarians? So, can we talk about nomadic proletarians. From the strict Marxist standpoint, the answer is no. For Marx, proletarians are not only the poor, but those who are, on account of their role in the production process, reduced to subjectivity, deprived of all substantial content. As such, they are also disciplined by the production process to become bearers of their future power the dictatorship of the proletariat. Those who are outside the production process and thereby outside a place in social totality are treated by Marx as lumpen proletarians and he doesn't see in them any or almost no emancipatory potential. He rather treats them with great suspicion as the force which is as a rule mobilized and corrupted by reactionary forces. Like... His big example from 18th Brimaire is how Napoleon III. He didn't just uh, uh, use the support of the wealthy. No, he mobilized this. Marx uses all the dirty words, scam or whatever you want. Uh, so again, you see the structural problem. Uh, uh, the, we have here another gap, split. Proletarians are a zero, but they are a zero within our world, as it were. Now, what do we do with those who are, it's a tasteless reference to the title of my book, I know, a social less than zero. Less than zero, it means they don't fit into our world, not even as a zero. Now, I would like here to go a little bit into history, and I will refer to a manuscript which came to me through friends of friends of friends, 
It's a lady called Maria Kechonatsky. Maybe some of you know. She, yeah. yeah, you know her. Uh, 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 From uh, Kingston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She did a doctor's thesis, Soviet epistemologist and materialist ontology of poor life. She talks about Alexander Bogdanov, Lev Vygotsky, but especially Platonov. So she will be my source, my reference here. Uh, what does her thesis focus on? How things get complicated with the victory of the October Revolution when Bolsheviks exerted power in a country where not only the large majority of the population were small farmers and Bolsheviks gained power precisely by promising them land. You know, this is the irony. We associate Bolsheviks with collectivization and so on. But my God, the whole trick of getting power of Lenin was to give them land. It was, the formula was, as we all know, peace and land to farmers. It was not, uh, uh, it was not uh, uh, work, uh, mainly working class and so on and so on. But where? in Russia after the revolution, as the result of violent upheavals during the civil war, millions of people found themselves in the position, not of classic lumpen proletarians, but of homeless nomads who were not yet proletarians, reduced to the nothing of their working force, but literally less than proletarians, less than nothing. And that's why if you want to understand, I claim even today's uh, 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 immigrants, refugees, and so on, the best historical background, you still get it from the work of, again, one of my three big writers of 20th century, Beckett, Kafka, and Andrei Platonov, Platonov, sorry, the Russian, who described in detail their way of life and elaborated a kind of, again, materialist ontology of poor life. Uh, Platonov focuses on displaced nomadic groups in a post-revolutionary situation, when the new communist power tries to mobilize this displaced poor for the communist struggle. Each of his works uh, uh, departs from the same political problem. How to build communism? what communism means and how the communist idea meets the concrete conditions of reality of the post-revolutionary society. That was his problem. We have communists in power, they speak from the work, and, but what do you do with that chaotic majority? It's not even traditional farmers. Almost the majority of farmers were somehow displaced, wandering around, and you can hear, you can read here such fascinating stories. Uh, sometimes when I'm totally desperate and the choice is uh, one of my, another of my paradoxes, either you kill yourself or you find something on YouTube that may save you, no. I found an excellent documentary of the guy who is usually dismissed as the model of brutality. He was always my hero. I'm not joking, Felix Dzerzhinsky, the founder of Cheka. He was not a crazy madman. You know that already from 22, 3, 23, he saw when civil war was won, he saw the ultimate 
catastrophe. He saw just around Moscow, there were basically around half a million homeless children wandering around. And he dedicated literally in the last years, he died in 26 early, I think, his life to how to take care of all these problems and so on. And he began losing power because the real power, those Stalin, even up to a point, Trotsky, they said, oh, fine, you take care of this, we will fight real political gains. But he was obsessed by this problem of what to do for ordinary people. He even warned against too fast collectivization, that he said, forget about socialism. Now, the first step is to organize life minimally, to organize agricultural production, and so on, and so on. So, Platono's answer to this problem of how to build communism with non-proletarian refugees, dispossessed people. Uh, Platonov's answer is, again, paradoxical, far from the usual dissident rejection of communism. His result is a negative one. All his stories are stories of a failure. The synthesis between the communist project and the displaced nomadic groups ends in a void. There is no unity between proletarians and less than proletarians. But not simply because these less than proletarians are too primitive and so on. It's much more subtle. First, Platonov is as far as possible from this conservative liberal critique of revolution as a violent attempt to impose on actual life models which are foreign to it. You know this Edmund Burke critique. And uh, I'm so evil, but I like to notice these are always symptomal points. How you get strange uh, bedfellows. I was so shocked that when, that in one of her books, when she speaks of Hegel, my God, I haven't met her in last year, so I wanted to ask her, sorry, she is Judith Butler. She quotes positively Edmund Burke. As she saw the complexity and so on, the revolution shouldn't violate it, and so on and so on. Okay, what did Platonov do? Platonov first articulates his despair, that's why he's authentic, from the position of an engaged fighter for communism. You know, he wasn't bluffing. He spent years from the end of the civil war doing concrete work. And he engaged with nomadic groups in the 20s, also at a very practical, technical level, planning, organizing irrigation projects, and so on, and so on. Second, Platonov is not depicting a conflict between the traditional texture of social life and the radical revolutionary attempt to change it. His focus is not on the traditional forms of life, but on the dispossessed nomads whose lives were already irretrievably ruined by the process of modernization. You know, his story is not that of, which is that part, my God, where there was the strongest Uh, counter-revolution, Vendea. No, it's not, you have these conservative farmers who resist revolution. The paradox is that the dispossessed were already dispossessed. 
no way back. But nonetheless, they couldn't be integrated into the uh, communist project. Uh, in short, ra the radical cut, Platonov depicts, is not the cut between the spontaneous proletarian crowd and the organized communist forces. It's the cut between the gap that separates two aspects of the proletarian crowd itself. The strictly proletarian nothing of modern workers and the less than nothing of those not integrated into the system. There is a wonderful quote from his great novel, Chevengur, an exchange. Who did bring us? Who, whom, who, who did you bring us? And Chepurni, one of, Chepurni asks Prokofi, another guy. The answer is, that's proletarians and others, Prokofi said. Chepurni was disturbed. What others? Again, the layer of residual, residual swine. The first guy answers, the others are the others. Nobody. They are even worse than the proletariat. That's uh, Platonov's problem. Plat now, quote from the Chekhonatsky uh, thesis. Platonov names his marginal, declassed wanderers as handmade people with an unknown designation. Uncounted, mistakable, or he uses the Russian word prochie, prochie. Others in the English translation. But the Russian word prochie also refers to the rest, the remainder. Thus, others is the rest of the people. They don't belong to any class category existing in Marxist theory because they are too poor and detached from normal social life. The other, therefore, refers to someone who remains unaccounted for due to their amorphous and marginal status, but who is also part of a multiplicity which is not countable, part of the scattered and nomadic people, an anomaly of humanity trapped between life and death, between social and uh, biological. Uh, you know why I quote this? Because you, sorry, no. As a terrorist, oh, just uh, yeah. You mentioned yesterday, yeah, 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 you, you. Now, you see the bourgeois opportunism. You looked around, not me, not me. Secret police will find you. No. Sorry, sorry, it's my nature. I cannot read. I'm like that Scorpio, you know, who bites the frog. Even if he will travel. No, you mentioned yesterday this unaccountable, but you and so on, no. But... Uh, I think we should read this against the background as potentially critical of this simplified but you or Ranciere notion of this unaccountable surplus which is the site of the event. Where they, they are just, how should I put it in cynical terms, simply unaccountable. And all the attempts to make them the site of a communist event failed. That's basically the tragedy of the tragedy of uh, Platonov. So one has to avoid absolutely the elevation of this prochie into an original site of productivity, because that would have been, let's call it, although this is more Deleuzeanism than Deleuze, the Deleuzean temptation, you know, to say, oh, but this unaccountable, they are the site of presence, not representation, the true site of social productivity and so on. No, these prochie, they are not 
the lesbian multitude, they are on the contrary, living dead, caught in a non-productive passivity, basically deprived of the very will to be active. This is why I'm tempted to risk another translation of prochie, neighbors in all the biblical weight of this term, those who are others and precisely as such always too close to us, no matter how far away they are. What makes them too close is that we lack a proper distance towards them because they don't possess a clear identity, a place in society. The Christian motto, love your neighbor as yourself, acquires here its full weight. True social love is the love for the unaccountable less than nothing. However, this love can take different Forms. And while Bolsheviks certainly loved them, wanted to help and redeem them, they followed the model of what Lacan called university discourse. Prochie were their object small a, objectita, and they put all their effort into enlightening them, into changing them in modern subjects. You know the Lacan scheme of university discourse. University knowledge addresses object A, unaccountable, and the point is to produce modern uh, subject. The conflict that lies at the heart of Platon's work is thus not a conflict between enemies, but a kind of lover's quarrel. Bolsheviks wanted to help the homeless others, to civilize them. And these others, depicted by Platonov, sincerely endorsed the communist ideals and fought for them. So it was not even a conflict. Many of them were... Chevengur is a big story of a group of nomads who claim we will do communism in our village and so on and so on. But everything goes wrong. Another quote from Chekhonatska. Others in Platonov's novels are always manipulated by more conscious comrades, party leaders and intellectuals, but always unsuccessfully. It is almost impossible to integrate others into the collective body of the workers and to establish a normalized uh, sociality based on the collectivization of labor and industrial production. End of quote. However, now comes Platonov's complexity. Platonov subtly noted that this gap is not just the gap between self-conscious revolutionary force and the inertia of the crowds. While Bolsheviks focused on the operational aspect of social transformation, the core of the communist utopia was directly present in the dreams of these prochie others who expected something radically new to arise. You know, Platonov noticed how precisely these total outcasts, precisely because they didn't have any concrete content, you know, Marxist, if you ask them what will communism look like, you get a five hours lectures with all and so on and so on. But this, they embraced communism absolutely enthusiastically, but they, but they took it in a very literal way, you know, like not as a first phase, second phase, let's just do it. Uh, uh, Platonov, in, uh, the, what is so fascinating here is that Platonov, that's why he is maybe the greatest poet of Russian language, noticed how this conflict between 
enlightened party bureaucracy, not in the bad sense, but even sincere, a Paratsik wanted to build a new communist society, and these homeless proxy neighbors, uh, how it inflected the language. Uh, it's the tension between official party language and the primitive speech of these others. Quote, don't be afraid, the last quote from this Czechonatska, Platono reflected the historical development of a new Soviet language made of revolutionary slogans, the vocabulary of Marxist political economy, the jargon of the Bolsheviks and party bureaucrats and its absorption by the illiterate peasants and workers. Historical research shows that for most of the post-revolutionary population, especially in the provinces, the language of the party, official, uh, communist jargon, was foreign and unintelligible, so that they themselves perforce the, uh, uh, this proxy, illiterate people, refugees, began to absorb the new vocabulary often garbled into unfamiliar bookish terms or reconfigured, or they reconfigured these terms as something more comprehensible, however absurd. For, for example, uh, the term Deistvujuspsaya Armia, acting army, in ordinary slang of the people, it, 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 uh, it becomes Deistvujuspsaya Armia, virginal army. This was how Red Army was reflected among ordinary people. Uh, or Militionär, militiamen, become Litsimer. Litsimeria is the Slavic for hypocrisy and so on. So uh, I, this is a unique bastard mixture, mixture with all its senseless mobilization of sound resemblances and so on and so on. Of course, there is an unexpected truth in it. In an oppressive regime, policemen are hypocrites. Revolutionaries are supposed to act in, like a virgin in a kind of innocence, and so on and so on. I think this Platonov is a, a wonderful example of what Lacan called la langue, language, as this beyond semantic confusion. But what's so beautiful in Platonov here, I will make a leftist turn, is that what for Lacan is more some stupid, boring, in Joyce, I cannot stand Joyce. I mean, I mean for me, in my gulag prison, <laughs> if you are the lowest there, you, you will have to read Finnegan's Wake, you know. <laughs> but, you know, it's so wonderful to find this... Precisely these confusions, playing with words, with sounds, with sounds, but with a concrete, uh, concrete social conflict addressed in it. So again, what is the political implication of this loss of meaning, of how communist slogans become some kind of meaningless play with words? Although interpenetrating the two levels, official Bolshevik speech and the everyday speech of the others remain antagonistic. The more the revolutionary activity tried to combine them, the more their antagonism becomes palpable. And sadly, I claim, now it's the end of this detour to Platonov, the same failure is, occurs necessarily 
for structural reasons also in, in our situation today, namely with the project of a fusion of today's working class and today's less than proletarians, refugees, immigrants, and so on and so on. Here also, one has to assume Platonov's lesson. The tension is not only between the local conservative races, lower classes, and the immigrants. The difference in the entire way of life is so striking that one cannot count on some easy solidarity of all exploited. Perhaps the antagonism between proletarians and less than proletarian others is an antagonism which is in some sense even more unsurpassable than the class antagonism within the same community. Precisely at this point when the subsumption of these refugees, others, into our working class seems the most obvious and the universality of all oppressed seems at hand, it slips out of our grasp. In other words, the less than proletarian others cannot be subsumed, integrated, not because they are too different, too heterogeneous with regard to our life work, but because they are at the same time absolutely immanent to it. You know, again, these wandering nomads are not out there, not civilized enough. Their nomadic situation is absolutely immanent to today's global system. They embody the most brutal impact of this, of the of global consequences of our, uh, of our systems. And again, I don't have an easy uh, uh, positive solution here, but this is my pessimism, if you want to put it like this, that, uh, that this new contradiction will be extremely, antagonism, whatever, will be extremely uh, difficult to overcome. The, again, the problem is that of subsumption. Uh, the classical Marxist project is, these are just new forms of those exploited and so on, bring them together, although already in Marx and, and especially Engels, you have a little bit of this arrogant West European, highly developed proletarian dismissal of uh, those who are not yet developed proletarians. For example, uh, right-wingers in my country are endlessly exploiting some lines which were published already in 49-50 under the name of Marx, but they are really uh, were written by Engels. Where Engels says, doesn't Engels speaks about the Austrian Empire and so on, and he doesn't count the Slavic nations there as a potential revolutionary force. He strictly dismisses them at those primitive, pre-modern forces, which, if they get politicized, they will only serve reactionary forces in the Austrian Empire. One can understand why uh, Engels thought this, because, you know, his big trauma was 48 revolution, where, for example, in Austria, it was the Slavic volunteers, my own nation played the role, Slovenes, Croats who crushed the revolution in Hungary and even helped the emperor in Vienna and so on. So uh, uh, 
Right-wingers like to quote an unfortunate passage, you know, to make their anti-communist point that Hitler just took the idea of Holocaust from Marx, because in an unfortunate formulation, Engels writes there that when revolutionary process will explode in Western Europe, this, and Engels uses there a wonderfully aggressive uh, 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 twist of the words. She said, uh, how could these small nations, Croats, Slovenes, not be reactionary when their existence itself is already a reaction, like a remainder of the past? And then he says that European revolution will sweep, sweep away in one big holocaust all these nations <laughs> and so on. No, no, uh, 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 Engels' vision, he says openly, I don't care if Slavs suffer and so on. The only thing I care is, will they be an obstacle to the revolution in Germany? And so uh, uh, what I'm saying is that this problem is even already there, and if anything, it, uh, if, uh, anything, it exploded. And again, I... The problem, again, is that it's not, I repeat it, it's not this usual problem of we have others, our proletarians are nonetheless part of our society, but we have primitive others. No, these are people who live these nomads in between. Their existence, nomadic, nomadic, is not some, so it would be wonderful to subsume them, because their existence is nomadic, which means they, their way of life is traditional. If ever, they ever had it, it's already totally ruined. And it's very interesting to observe, to analyze the spontaneous cultures, wild, improvised religions, social forms that they improvise, that they improvise to survive. But uh, uh, don't underestimate, again, this total destruction of the way of life, and these are our problems today, for well-known reasons, we, about which we talked enough yesterday. I was recently in Canada, and then they already told me, I always ask this, you know that their own Inuit, to put it in racist term, Eskimo, and uh, how do they call them, First Nation or whatever, I don't like this term, because, you know, it doesn't matter if they are First Nation or what. As if they were really first there. The last guys from whom I spoke, uh, used this term is South African apartheid people, who always emphasize, and my black friends confirmed to me that this is true. When first uh, Dutch emigrants landed in Cape Town, whatever, South Africa, blacks were not yet there, today's black majority. It was Bushman Hottentot. And the blacks that we know today arrived a couple of decades later, and of course they slaughtered. <laughs> they did the ethnic cleansing and so on. Does this justify apartheid? No, of course it doesn't. But uh, precisely this means that we shouldn't play this game of who was first there and so on and so on. So what I wanted to say is that uh, uh, they are not in any sense, these nomadic proletarians, the first people. They are, in some sense, I see the temptation to proclaim them the true proletarians. Because don't underestimate the degree to which 
our proletarians are still part of our culture with a certain identity. If nothing else, think about, didn't George Orwell write a famous text where he, appraising it, analyzes these British pubs and so on, elements of very ordinary British working class culture and so on. These are people who are totally at a loss. And again, what I learned in Canada is that there, even today, and even much worse than the United States, uh, this, whatever you call them, first people, so-called Indians and, and Inuits, Eskimos, are totally traumatized, deprived of the will. You know that there is a city, I wrote about it briefly, now I ask again my friends, they told me the same shit goes on. Somewhere in the middle of Canada, but way up north, there is an Inuit city, okay, 2,000 of them live there. It's world capital in suicide. Like, in the last year, about 20% of guys killed themselves and so on. So we are not talking just about despair or what. We are talking literally about, and this is the true social less than nothing. You, even, you know, losing these basic coordinates which allow you somehow to survive, to construct a meaningful life in spite of all suffering and so on and so on. It's just total despair, drugs, alcohol, suicide, and so on and so on. Now, uh, okay, now I come to the last part, speaking about subsumption, which I promised you yesterday, Balibar and so on. Uh, because uh, now I go to the opposite. But the, what you should learn from this first part is that nonetheless, again, those that we cannot subsume are not some foreign exotic culture and so on. They are easy to subsume. It's, I never saw a problem for capitalism to integrate some, I don't know how, exotic cultures. And, and they are also, and I love them for that, very cunning and manipulative. If you must remember, I used it here two times. I mean, my favorite story, when I was years ago in New Zealand, I met some authentic artists there, you know, <laughs> painters, you know. But I became their friend. Oh, my God, I love them. First, they gave me the bullshit, you know. Uh, we are not like you, commercially oriented. We, we see a mountain, we listen to the voice of the mountain telling us what to paint and so on. And then... When I get, got to know them, they told me, but nonetheless, we have an agent in New York, <laughs> and she tells us what's in, what's fashionable. No? At that point, what was fashionable was religious sex. You have some monument in ruins and a naked lady there somewhere, something. And as they told me cynically, all of a sudden, their mountain spirit started to tell them <laughs> to paint this. But I love them for this. You know, why don't you give them the right to, you know, my, in my ideal world of just punishment, we, multicultural white liberals who admire oh, this authentic life, not, we should go to live into some shitty New Zealand village, no? 
and allow them to play commercial games here. That would have been uh, wonderful. Okay, but uh, so again, the lessons of this is that uh, uh, what is most difficult to subsume is our own product. Again, it's not the others there. Capitalism loves these precisely defined entities. Oh, you have a tribe there, it is defined into their identity and so on and so on. You know, they are, they are easy to integrate because you can instantly be located and so on and so on. So, just to conclude with this problem of subsumption, please be patient. A couple of quotes, and it's not so easy, but nonetheless, I think it's important. This Etienne Balibar's lesson. This is there is a volume published by Kingston, again, University, it's collective volume called Capitalism, Concept, Concept, Idea, Image. <coughs> and in it, Etienne Balibar has a text towards a new critique of political economy, from generalized surplus value to total subsumption, end of quote. Uh, I like this volume, although incidentally I learned it's meant as a critique of what Alain Badiou and us did here the Communism Conference. No, this is... Okay, why not? Okay, so, Balibar develops here the notion of the total subsumption as the basic tendency of today's capitalism. This term does not cover only the phenomena of so-called cultural capitalism, the growing commodification of the cultural sphere and so on. But above all, the full subsumption under the logic of the capital of the workers themselves and the process of their reproduction. Now, this is the crucial point I will try to elaborate. It's, it's not that total subsumption mean, mean, means even things which were before not done by reducing workers to proletarians, but still autonomous artisans and so on, we are today all proletarians. No, there is another twist. Which one? Be patient, a longer quote from Balibar. Whereas Marx explained that capital ultimately could be reduced to productive labor, or was nothing other than labor in a different form, appropriated by a different class, the theory of human capital explains that labor, more precisely laboring capacity, Arbeitsvermögen in German, can be reduced to capital or become analyzed in terms of capitalist operations of credit, investment, and profitability. This is, of course, what underlies the ideology of the individual as a self-entrepreneur or an entrepreneur of oneself. The issue is here not so much to describe a growth of markets for existing products. It is much more to push the range of the market beyond the limits of the production sphere in the traditional sense, therefore to add new sources of permanent extra surplus value that can become integrated into valorization, overcoming its limitations. Because capitalists valorize both on the objective side of labor and production and on the subjective side of consumption and use. End of quote. So it's not just about making working force more productive. It is to conceive of the working force itself directly as another field of capitalist investment. 
all aspects of subjective life itself of workers, health, education, sexual life, psychic state, are considered not only as important for the productivity, like you should keep workers educated so that they will be more productive, but as fields of investment which can generate additional surplus value. Health services do not only serve the interest of capital by way of making workers more productive. They are themselves an incredibly powerful field of investment, not only for the capital, health services, I hope you know this, is the single strongest branch of the UK, U, US economy. Health service is double in quantity financially, double the amount of military. It's absolutely... Uh, uh, uh. But for the workers themselves, who treat paying health insurance as an investment into their future, that's the catch. You treat, this is the self-entrepreneur aspect, now you treat yourself as a possible capital investment. Should I invest in education? Should I invest in healthcare? And so on and so on. The same goes for education. It does not only get you ready for productive work. It is in itself a field of profitable investment for institutions as well for individuals who invest into their future. So it is as if, in this way, the commodification not only becomes total, but also gets caught into a kind of self-referential loop. Working power as the ultimate source of capitalist wealth, the origin of surplus value, becomes itself a moment of capitalist investment. Nowhere is this loop more clearly expressed then, again, in the already mentioned idea of the worker as self-entrepreneur, a capitalist who decides freely where to invest his meager surplus resources into education, health, housing, property, or whatever. Does this process have a limit? When, in the very last paragraph of his essay, Balibar approaches this question, and that's why I became attentive to this text, he strangely resorts to a Lacanian reference, to Lacan's logic of non-all, from Lacan's formulas of situation. So the last quote from Balibar, this is what I call a total subsumption after formal or real subsumption, because it leaves nothing outside, no reservation of natural life, or... Anything that is left outside must appear as a residue and a field for further incorporation, or must it? That is, of course, the whole question, ethical as well as political. Are there limits to commodification? Are there internal and external obstacles? A Lacanian might want to say, Every such totalization includes an element of impossibility which belongs to the real. It must be patu, not all. If that were the case, the heterogeneous element, the intrinsic remainder, remainders of the total subsumption, could appear in many different forms, some apparently individualistic, such as pathologies or anarchist resistances, others common or even public. Or they may become manifest in certain difficulties in implementing the neoliberal agenda 
such as the difficulty of dismantling a medical system once it has been legalized. End of quote. I think from my Lacanian standpoint, there is a slight confusion here in Balibar. What he says is that is something very strange for a Lacanian. He, Balibar, condenses, or rather simply confuses, the two sides of Lacan's formulas of sexuation. And simply, he reads non-all as the persistence of an exception. Subsumption is not all if something resists it. It can be, as Balibar puts it, either the workers' wild anarchic resistance, I don't want just to be a worker, or at a more acceptable level, although maybe even not more acceptable, this, uh, in our society, healthcare and so on, or so, socialized culture, which is not uh, subordinated to market, and so on, and so on. So for Balibar here, non-all is simply, not all social life can be subsumed under capital. And of course then, we can here play the game of uh, uh, some dialectical analysts were doing this already when I was young, trying to prove how uh, these exemptions, what cannot be subsumed under capital, are, are uh, positive conditions of the normal functioning of the capital. So if you subsume everything under capital, it's self-destruction. It can, it can ruin it. You know who saw this very nicely? I wasn't able, in my Toronto debate of the century, <laughs> I wasn't able to develop this. It's really a naive book. I mentioned it there briefly, but uh, you know Daniel Bell, an old classic already in 71 or when, wrote a classical book, naive but still pertinent, called uh, Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism, where he develops how capitalism, by entering this consumerist stage and so on, necessarily by subsuming everything, cultural life also, under capital is ruining its own positive conditions of normal uh, functioning, is in this sense uh, destroying itself. And then this is also the big argument of conservative pro-capitalists that their message is precisely we need church, family values, and so on, as not totally controlled by the market, not because we don't like market, they will, would add, but precisely because only through these parts, smooth functioning of these elements of social life, not yet swallowed by the capital, can capital function normally. Uh, uh. But Lacan precisely opposes non-all and exception. Lacan's point of non-all is not not all, or oh, there are exceptions. As you probably know, it's precisely that, yes, every universality is based on an exception. And when there is no exception, the set is non-all. It cannot be totalized. And this opposition should be applied to, topic of, to the topic of subsumption. One should pass from the search for exception for those who resist 
universal subsumption under capital, and this is, you know, the popular topic of the sites of resistance. This was, when I was young, now it's hopefully disappearing. The popular term was, where are the sites of resistance to the system? No? And it can be anything. Like, uh, he's my friend, but I didn't like when in one of his essays, not even novels, Hanif Kureishi wrote that how, when I was young, 68, a site of resistance was, you go on the street, you demonstrate, today it is you take your lover and you lock yourself into a room and what you do there in sex is a site of resistance, and so on, like anywhere. But I think that uh, it's much more uh, productive, I think, to do the opposite, to see what if, how things get complicated, inconsistent, precisely if you, if everything is subsumed. Uh, for example, when, again, in this case, when workers themselves, working force becomes a capital, so that the production of, you see what I'm talking about, Worker produces surplus value, but surplus value is already produced in the production of the worker itself through education and so on and so on. Just let me conclude. So in Marx's critique of political economy, there are two main cases for, of universality through exception, money and working force. The field of commodities can only be totalized through a special commodity which functions as a general equivalent of all commodities. But as such, it is deprived of use value. That's money. The field of the exchange of commodities only gets totalized when individual producers not only sell on the market their products, but when working force as a commodity is also sold out on the market. So maybe we should supplement Marx. There is a third case. When this commodity, working force, which produces surplus value, becomes itself an object of capital investment, bringing surplus value. So that we get two types of surplus value. The normal surplus value generated by the products of the working forces, and the surplus generated by the production of the working force itself. A nice example we get here of Hegel's insight into how the absolute always involves self-splitting and is in this sense non-all. With the production of working force itself as a field of capital investment, the subsumption under capital becomes total, but precisely as such it becomes non-all, it cannot be totalized. The self-referential element of working force itself as a capital investment, introduces a gap which brings imbalance into the entire field. And I think that, uh, again, I, I think, and, and it's, I have this wild hope, if you look at how this effectively functions, this reduplication of, of surplus value, you know, I, which I am not, I honestly admit, I as a proletarian, working class, produce surplus value, but in a redoubled way. Also, I am also 
I produce surplus value, but not only when I work and capital or the capitalist appropriates my surplus. I already produced surplus for those who invested in me. For example, to healthcare services or whatever you want there and so on and so on and so on. And I think, I cannot develop it now, I think that this, this immanent inconsistency, not any sites of resistance out there, are the true danger for capitalism. In the sense that if you universalize commodification in this self-relating sense, that again, the very source of surplus value is itself point of an investment to produce surplus value, in some sense, the system uh, begins to collapse. It cannot function. It cannot function. Okay, I promised you that, and I will keep my word. I was shorter today, so now maybe we should do. Uh, yeah. What? Are you? Were you sorry? I no, no, be- no. I, I'm I so remember sorry. who was. I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry. No, it's not my racism or sexism. It's simply. It's ah. simply. I still have. I cannot see well. Okay. Okay, thank you so much, actually. I mean, uh, I think like uh, Slavo was saying during the talk, he mentioned that, you know, when his desire ebbs and he wants to kill himself or something, you go to YouTube. And, uh, (laughs) well, I felt like that at the beginning, actually. I didn't even want to say an introduction, but you managed to revive us during the talk, especially... (laughs) No, it's true, especially with the the beautiful analysis of the Platonov stories, but also we have to go and read our... Sorry, can I interrupt you in a friendly uh, way? No. Please... he is incredible. Platonov, Who read yeah. Platonov? Maybe that Chevenguri is a little bit too much, but the greatest portrait of what was wrong in the project of uh, Bolshevik communism from the very beginning, but it's not the cheap bourgeois criticism of it. It's his no, mega work, Foundation Pit. And when workers to build... Uh, and all that remains is just a big... And you know what's really tragic there? He writes it with such obvious enthusiasm. He brings out the nihilism, but writing about it with total dedication, you know. uh, uh, This is very important if we are to understand Stalinism. To see this dimension, which was not yet the bad Stalinism, but something wrong already before. I'm sorry. It's, it's I the not. paradox that you were talking about yesterday as well, that you know, even though his project of subsuming this Lumpen proletariat is destined to this failure, and this, you, you're not left with despair. You still carry on what you were saying you know, yesterday, that you still make him, he, he becomes even more active in subsuming or in including these people in, in a project that is actually quite... Uh, 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 can I, can I just add a, another thing that we, maybe you will like? Then the late Platonov, but I think it was an inner necessity, it wasn't a compromise with Stalinism. You know where I also to amuse you a little bit, a little bit. Uh, uh, my God, I, Stalinism was a nightmare, I admit it. But how ambiguous things are. For example, you know, usually we say about the most famous Stalinist composer today from that era, Shostakovich, no? We usually say how his creativity was thwarted by Stalinist pressure, you know, his opera was prohibited, uh, uh, Lady Macbeth, and then to 
to regain favor, he wrote the Fifth Symphony, which he ironically subtitled self-criticism to a just critique of an honest... Com- uh, uh, that, okay. Now comes the irony. It's so brutal. Yes, but I... I'm sorry if I repeat myself. I really mention this here, but I read uh, half a year ago they made they, some big critics, but representative, not popular bullshit. Musical theorist, you know, this opinion, polls or whatever, they ask one, two thousand musical critics the best symphony of all times. It's predictable. I don't like it so much. Wiener was Beethoven heroica, you know. And, but now comes the irony. The only one from the 20th century that made the list was Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony, which is exactly dismissed as, oh, he's uh, compromised with Stalinism and so on and so on. My God, his works, which are dismissed as Stalinist compromise, are today the most, okay, maybe this tells something wrong about our era, you know. This or, or with Prokofiev. I, sorry if I repeat, my, but I always like when Prokofiev died, you know when he died, it's wonderful, destiny, God, on the same day as Stalin. That's why friends were not able to do the proper burial because for all roses or flowers were sold out no? <laughs> for the other guy. And uh, then I read in a biography of Prokofiev that... Uh, David Oistrach came and as a kind of a dissident gesture, played there, it's beautiful, you can download it anywhere for free, uh, his first uh, violin piano sonata, second movement, I think, very dark, melancholic, no? And then they said, oh, what a big, defiant, dissident gesture, Oistrach played this second movement there. Yeah, 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 but this same sonata got two years earlier the biggest Stalin prize, you know, <laughs> which is the crisis. It's, it's so, you cannot, uh, you cannot understand Stalinism without, again, taking into account all this uh, inconsistent, oh, I'm getting well, lost here, I admit. Uh, sorry, no, no, uh, 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 I wanted to. <laughs> never, ne- never, never, look, I will, uh, with my male chauvinist terror, you know what favor I'm doing to you? I allow you to play this game on, you know, resisting oppressed women. Every to. minute you try to, no, male bad authority crushes you again and again. No, what I no. wanted to tell you is that, seriously, this is yeah, yeah, uh, uh, Read, you can get it in pocket. I think, although it's bad translation, the short novel of late Platonov called The Soul. Yes, that's beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful, no? Where it's, it's a kind of a high Stalinism. But it's so beautifully ambiguous. It's a guy from somewhere down there, Azerbaijan and so on, who studies in Moscow, and then is sent by the party as a kind of, to bring some nomadic tribe which are wandering around to civilize them. It's the same story yeah. as in early Platonov, but... Since we are in Stalinism, which means I always believe that Stalinism in culture is close to Hollywood. You know, I will not bore you. My old example, the greatest maybe Stalinist movie, uh, The Fall of Berlin, where the whole World War II is fought against the background of producing a couple. 
You remember, yeah, yeah, if you were yeah. here years ago, I showed you a clip in the last scene when the guy fights as a soldier to get his girl who is in German prison, and in the last scene, in, on a plane, on a flat in Berlin, uh, they are looking for each other. Then Stalin comes, which he never did. Lenz gives a speech, and the girl looks into Stalin's face and sees where Stalin looking and sees him, you know. And then she steps towards Stalin, Comrade Stalin, can I give you a kiss, and so on. It's absolutely... So, in other words, this typical Hollywood logic, the example I usually made, even in this hall years ago, is, uh, you know, Warren Beatty, Reds, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. where basically the revolution is made so that they patch up their difference. Literally, in that film, see it if you don't believe it. October Revolution is set as a background for their passionate lovemaking. Yeah. Literally. Okay, but Stalin is still the same, my God, in this film. This symbolic, in this symbolic space of echoes, World War II is won so that a guy gets the girl. And in this novel, it's the same. The guy goes there and... Uh, Don't tell them the end. No, 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 it's very simple. <laughs> it, it, no big surprise. It's still authentic Platonov. He doesn't really cultivate this wild group. They just disappear. No, he, it's very pathetic. He wants to bring back their will to life and so on. They just despair, go. But through this disappearance, he gets the girl at the... So that at a deeper level, it's Hollywood. Yes, it's it's that uh, the function of the tribe is through its final erasure to create the couple. Yeah. You know, two examples, repeating myself, but they are nice, that you should read this against this background. Uh, did you see two uh, disgusting movies? Here I am. I get what I call my Goebbels reaction. I, my <laughs> long theory is that we shouldn't just condemn Goebbels. When he proposed burning movies, books, this is my cynicism, she had the right principle, but only applied it on wrong books. And <laughs> like, did you see Dances with Wolves of Kevin Costner? Oh, yeah. That was Absolutely so disgusting. You know, she goes among the Native Americans, Indians, because he loses his will to live. She encounters among them a lady who is, of course, we learn, a white lady who was kept there. And at the end, Indians disappear destroyed, but he gets the lady. So all this bullshit about helping the natives is here just to create a couple. Even a more disgusting example, one of the movies which I would burn even faster, maybe. <laughs> Did you see with Robin Williams and Robert De Niro Awakening? It's the same. It's apparently about Robert De Niro bringing this catatonic or patient back to life, but it's only, you remember, it's absolutely crucial. Here, maybe I'm not totally stupid. When I saw the movie the first time, I predicted at the beginning that this will happen. You know, Robin Williams is afraid, shy, and he has a nurse, and it's afraid to ask her. And then when Robert De Niro, his main patient who is temporarily awakened, in the sense that he's not just catatonic but speaks, tells him when he is relapsing back, no, you are the true one who should be awakened. And at the end, uh, 
the ultimately you remember you saw the movie no. disgusting no. the failure sorry the, like the, the treatment doesn't work they are all back catatonic but in the last scene Robin Williams asks the nurse can I invite you out and she said gladly yes uh. and that's the whole point you know fuck all those helping the catatonics they are here <laughs> to create to create the couple and I find it so crazy that at the highest level of art Platonov the same thing. he does the same he does the same no Any now I will really not interrupt now we'll you take some uh, questions from the audience and I didn't I you, know there was yeah, I'm so sorry for that the the, 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 he, the she was so upset the, le- the other lady back. is not here she, not she was sitting she here she was in tears when you, we left yesterday Sorry? Because we didn't ask her yesterday and she hasn't come. Oh, I like it so it's much. It's all your fault. When, we, it's when, your fault. when women are in anyway, tears so for me, ask. can you imagine something nicer? <laughs> Sorry, please. Yes, it's you. And oh, then, uh, yes, yes, if we can go further with, um, with you, the traitor lady. Jan. Yeah. Jan, you have to ask a question whether you like it or not. No, you. Antigone. Uh, uh, we can go on. Please. Now it's you. My please. Question, my question. Uh, the title of this lecture is Disorder Under... Disorder under heaven. That that translates into order under hell. You see what I mean? Um, I understand that Julian Assange is in Belmarsh, a sort of kind of called Hellmarsh. Yeah. I was wondering whether you, as a kind of uh, revolutionary action or something, a positive thing to do, would, would you go and visit Julian? I inquired, I have just a few links. I know somebody, I think he's called. James, who was my usual contact, then I know that German movie director, no movie, sorry, uh, 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 theater director Angela Richter, who is included, then it's Sretsko Horvat, the Croat friend, and uh, un- unfortunately, there will be something they plan, when will be the hearing? Is it the 1st of June 2nd or when? I, I have no idea. Yeah, no, no, no. No, I was told that he is in this separated part where it's difficult to have contact with him, I mean. You cannot just, it's not the usual, already the last year in the embassy, you know, it was a bureaucratic process. You should fill out a very complicated forum, you should exactly, and well, so... If you could, would you visit him? Sorry? If you could visit him, would you visit him in, in prison? Yeah, of course. Okay. But I just doubt, do you have any connections there? His, his mother, no, no, his own, no. <laughs> no. His own mother was tweeting yesterday, tweeting that uh, he's found it, you know, and his lawyers have been saying that they found it difficult to uh, apply the three visits per week. That yeah, that's the problem. Allowed. Even the lawyers, so even the lawyers, even the lawyers don't so have access to him. If you can get access, we'll all go. <laughs> yeah. All right. Next question. But you gave me a book yesterday. I like it. I will read it. I, because uh, I'm sorry, I'm not in a good. Sorry. No. No, I left it in the hotel room. No. Can I ask you? But it's meant as an extreme love gesture. But uh, I have a strange question. Now, as an old Nazi, I will talk. You don't look quite British to me, but your voice sound is. Your English is much better than what I expected from your face. Are you cheating? What are you really? <laughs> Sorry? Russian. Oh, my God. How did you learn such a good uh, English? Because your, uh, isn't his pronunciation... Sorry. Sorry. Uh, please. All right. Uh, Bernard, did you have a question? 
if you put your hands up, then I'll be able to see. Uh, thank you. Um, just briefly, I wonder if you could say more about the um, contradiction and the idea of the worker being expected to invest in themselves to the point you finish on. I just I know that, for instance, something like in the United States, there's less than 5% of college degrees are supposed to add value now to someone's expected earnings over their lifetime. So you already have to be in the top 5% to take on a debt of a degree and expect to, that to become productive in your life. But is this, um, this is a contradiction that it seems is kind of capable of being uh, accommodated in contemporary <coughs> capitalism. So I just wonder why would this contradiction be particularly um, useful in a revolutionary or transformative sense. And I wonder also if you could connect it to the point you finished on yesterday, because you were saying something really interesting about um, the, the relationship that this might bear to Lacan and the role of the real as a symbolic thing within Lacanian, Lacanian theory. Um, I have a separate question about Deacon, but I think I'll leave that. Deacon, do you know, maybe you know more about Deacon. You know in detail? Yeah. Well, because I, for me, I, I, know his, I know the book you referred to, and I've I seen him speak, and I spoke to him briefly about it, and I, my understanding of his um, social theory, if there is one, is, is that it is very much like a complex systems theory that resonates maybe with, like, Luhmann and the ideas of evolution and there being contingent constraints, but nothing inherently, in a Hegelian sense necessary to what changes and to what the constraints produce. So there's a kind of uh, contingency at an origin sort of negativity, which you, you, you spoke very well about, but I was interested in you brought that up. No, uh, now, okay, I will, first I try to be honest as much as possible in this world. So I will admit it that I just looked a little bit at the book and that my sources are secondary. What I only liked, and I then looked, googled his other books, which didn't which are much more in the direction that you indicated, the complex system theory, whatever, no? Though when you mentioned Luhmann, you know, I wouldn't underestimate Luhmann. He cannot just be dismissed as an idiot. Luhmann is interesting, you know? Even uh, I knew people who knew Nicholas Luhmann, and they told me that the paradox is that although in this official opposition... They are not enemies, but like polemics. Habermas versus Luhmann. Luhmann. Habermas is supposed to be more to the left, but de facto in his positions, Luhmann was often more to the left. Yeah, yeah. Also, my source of Luhmann is, you know that uh, Dupuy told me this, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, I mentioned it here. You know that paradox that I try to draw maybe too many mileage out of it of this... Uh, I don't know which 12 camel is the name of God, these paradoxes and so on. Luhmann wrote a short book on that paradox and so on. So I, uh, there are very intelligent system theories which emphasize on necessary inconsistencies and so on. But, but uh, uh, no, uh, uh, the, that I prefer not to answer today. The, your, the really tough was your... First question is, no, I'm not saying, uh, I agree with you, and that's the other mystery, but I think which makes the case even stronger. I, I also, uh, what I would say, the only way that I can resolve the problem that you mentioned, no? Because so much on education and from 
purely capitalist standpoint, most of it is useless, I claim. You know, not, not so much for social life as useless for, as useless for uh, even from the capitalist standpoint and so on. I mean, uh, uh, like, uh, I, oh, all these high business schools and so on, but do they really make you a more... And, and, but this would be, for me, that's where my line of thought is going. This makes it even more interesting because I think that uh, so much for education and so on, education is simply, forget, it's simply a new field of investment. It's as if capital needed a new field of investment and uh, it's, it doesn't matter if it's useful or not. In many American cities, smaller cities where I go, academia is the big business of that city. And some, uh, this, the, here I see an unexpected, that would be my answer to you, positive result out of it. So in some sense, the end of capitalism is already happening here because you know how much we spend for healthcare, education, and so on, for something which is not really necessary for the capitalist reproduction. Although capital tries to subsume it, and it does subsume it, but the result then is what you mentioned, this madness that we are spending heavily, heavily billions for something which I agree with you, all doesn't work. All this calculation, if you go to university, you will then, whatever, maybe it has some symbolic value and so on, but uh, very, ma very marginal and so on, you know. So again, that's what, that's where, this is almost a good thing about our societies, that so much money is spent, for example, for education, which is in some sense socially useless. You cannot justify it really. Uh, second point, when you mentioned, uh, uh, you know where I see the link with my final point yesterday, uh, 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 that uh, inconsistency and so on, that precisely the real is just this inner crack, how through total subsumption, uh, the capitalist reproduction is more and more turning into investments which are, from the standpoint of capital reproduction, useless. I see hope in this. Again, so it's not outside some external source. It, through its inner radicalization, it, it is under, and this is the real, not some original fisherman who hunts in Amazon river mm -hmm. fishes, and it's not, uh, it's not. This is why, incidentally, I also found so stupid, I mentioned yesterday, some reactions to this uh, Jordan Peterson debate, which were, ah, capitalism already won because you were there to earn money or whatever, and so on, you know. As I already mentioned to you, I think yesterday, first, I hate this logic. This is, yes, I remember I said this yesterday, but I repeat it, you know. This is typical upper middle class guilt. Every poor person with whom I speak, you have a chance of getting money, grab it. What's more wonderful than, you know? This is my basic Lacanian paradox. Yes, money is not all, but you can only say this when you have enough money. <laughs> no. Ah, I wanted to maybe uh, 
can I ask you to elaborate on what you, at the end, yesterday, you addressed that problem of uh, uh, Antigone and so on. You complicated it in a very uh, precise way, how Antigone cannot be made into some kind of, uh, you know, radical change, revolutionary, all this transgressive act, and so on. But I would like, okay, I simplified you to the utmost. So let me just make my point, and then you strike back. My first point here would have been that, uh, would you agree, I'm here plagiarizing my good friend Alenka Zupancic, who pointed out this, how it's clear what pushed Lacan from Antigone to Senior de Cuffontaine in next, because uh, seminar, because the moment of her, and I know I'm using a contradictory term, because they are opposed, sublime, sublime and beautiful, but uh, uh, what is false about Antigone is that the moment she is excommunicated, becomes a victim, she explodes in this self-admiration, you know, for me, the most disgusting part of Antigone is after she finds herself in that cave or whatever, she composes basically a PR piece for herself, you know. She says, what about that uh, goddess or whatever who was there? Like, she, she already stages herself as a myth to be narrated. So it's some kind of a weird satisfaction she gets there that I don't buy. But what you mentioned, nonetheless, I think that what makes me nonetheless authentic what would you, uh, about Antigone is that I agree with you that uh, she is not this model of, you know, let's step out into the blind real or whatever, it's brother's funeral and so on and so on. But for me, the truly subversive acts are always like this. It's not this external, we step out and so on. You, you do something which at some level fits perfectly or even too well the system. And precisely as such you bring uh, ruin to it. Then another way to defend Antigone is that it's not what she does. It's the way she... It's the fact that as a woman she, you know, the fact that as a woman she acts publicly. That that's quite formally her political dimension. It's not the content. If you look at the content of what she does, you can say, yeah, yeah, women, family values, and so on, who cares? But the forum of her, you know where you find the same logic? I hate the series, as I already told you. If you saw Handmaid's Tale, this, when, towards the end of the first season, the lady who is supposed to be the bad lady, the commander's wife, addresses some kind of a ruling body, this fundamentalist, and just pleads for them to allow women to read and write again. Not as a dissident gesture, but, but claiming, but we are on your side, I, so she does something totally compromised, but the fact that she does it in that way is that she is immediately punished, you know, they cut off her finger or whatever and so on and so on. I think this is how the true subversion works. Not, it's not, it's uh, much more important is 
What you, you do, it's the same. You know who knows this very well? In Saudi Arabia today, this is more, more and more my ideal country. I want to move there. No, it's cruel irony, but you know what happens now there? You know? Did you already mention it here? I think not. That, uh, that now they, and they were literally, it's not a joke, they propagated this as a big achievement for women's rights, that now if a man divorces his wife, he has to inform her via iPhone or what, no? That's enough for it. Yes, but I like it. You know what triggered this? Oh, I love this. This is Kafka. Uh, a guy divorced from his wife and was still sleeping with her, screwing her, but didn't tell her that they are divorced. The wife, when she learned this, denounced him to the police. You know what happened? Oh, my God, that's my country. She was arrested for sleeping with a guy who was not her husband. <laughs> and then, uh, as a big gesture, I, I, yeah, why did I mention this? Because, in, uh, you know, they are aware their authorities. Like, at the same time that they allowed women to drive, they arrested ten people who organized protest demands for this. So, you know, it's clear that what bothered the authorities is not the fact that women drive. It's that much more, what bothered them much, much more was that this, the forum of public protest and so on and so on. So the, the gesture was so clear. We give you what you want, but nonetheless you will be uh, arrested. In the same way, I spoke with a Russian friend and asked him, because he tried to convince me uh, that uh, even if the elections, they have that referendum in, how do you pronounce that, Crim, Crimea, how do you pronounce that? Crimea. Crimea, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, he told me, but you know, probably even in a very fair referendum there, the majority would have voted for annexation to Russia. So I asked him, I'm stupid, Western European liberal, so why didn't Putin do then a more honest referendum. And he told me, but that was the whole message. It, in the eyes of Russian authorities, it would already have been perceived as a weakness if you do it. Because this means that you uh, uh, admit uh, democratic decision and so on and so on. The message was, was precisely that it shouldn't be really democratic. It would have meant too much of a, you know, forum, forum matters. Forum matters uh, how you do it here. But I... It's like, says Sorry? About, it's like Kierkegaard says about the father, if he has to be good in order to have authority. Then no, 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 Kierkegaard has, and, but Kierkegaard is a genius immediately. He goes to, to Jesus Christ also, you know. Yeah. He first says to say that father is a, I obey my father because he's intelligent and bright, this is a blasphemy, you know. Mm. But then he, uh, that's Kirk, my Kierkegaard, he goes and says the same about Christ. That what Christ says are platitudes which, Kierkegaard's word I'm quoting, every average student of theology today can put it much better than Christ. Christ's message is what he is, not what he says. I talk too much, I promise. Please, if you want to counterattack. I have just a question. Uh, this doubling 
um, that produces where the product produces the yeah. services yeah. that is produced through investment. How is that different from um, the spec of human capital? Um, that through biopolitics, a mode of reason and governance that produces, uh, that self enhances for the purposes of investments and credit, and where all relationality is reduced to competition. And I'm just thinking of yeah. how someone like Eric Laurent, who I know you don't have a regard for, no, um, but how, Eric how, Laurent's no, book yeah. that psychoanalysis is the other of biopolitics. And when I how did he mean it? Could you explain it? I would like to know. How does he mean that? Yeah. Well, I've asked a lot of contemporary Lacanians who work with him, yeah. who can come here to London to speak, yeah. and they say that psychoanalysis is always on the side of the subject. So it's something about reactivating the subject, because this transformation of the subject into speculative human capital is almost what you're describing in this redoubling. <coughs> and it's about reactivating subjectivity. I mean, this is how I understand it, but I was hoping you could explain it. Uh, you know, the danger I see here is that, I know it, this may sound as a wild speculation, but at, uh, if I were to be a truly evil and cunning capitalist, I would say, but isn't, but probably if you experience yourself in this radical self-objectivization as just manipulating with yourself, investing in yourself, as self-objectivizing yourself as human capital, that in the end this doesn't work. So what if it's in the, this will, may sound a little bit leftist paranoia, but what if it is in the interest of capital that the subjectivity of the people is kept alive? I know that, I don't think capital can really work in this type of self-objectivization where everybody just uh, invests in himself and so on or whatever. So I claimed, what my point is that, what Laurent calls this being on the side of the subject, you know? It's an excellent instrument to make capitalism function more smoothly. What about the, the, you're reducing the possibility of an act, an act which takes you from the bad infinite to a transitive infinite. You know, you, I see. You're reducing, you're saying that there's, because I would say the not all is that transitive infinite. And there is a possibility of an act in which you can move from the bad infinite to something else. Yeah. And you're suggesting that that's not possible. And that's... No, no, no. Uh, sorry, sorry. Can, no, let's go. I, no, no, I would like... So what, what's, your, what's, your problem? what's your problem? Can I come in and, uh, you know... It, uh, no, 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 but this is, it, sorry. It's but the same thing, but also to bring us back to the topic that, uh, of disorder under the heaven, because it's not, you know, I mean, uh, maybe your view would be that, I mean, the act is, you know, you are calling not just for an individual act, but more collective act with a collective agency, and you haven't said enough, really, about this protest that are dotted around, and we have different kinds of protests uh, that might, are not or coordinated at the moment under this strong global agency that you would prefer to call communism, even though. And some of them, as you pointed out, are not just ironic. They are deadly serious. They're not cynical. So how do we, uh, you know, coordinate them in a way that 
this, you know, we can subsume the lumpen proletariat in, in immigrants that you're saying uh, are part of the imminent contradictions of capitalism anyway. So as you keep telling us for the last two days is that all these problems are there. We've got these imminent contradictions that David Bell also identified 50 years ago. So what do we do to bring them all together now and not lose our nerve, like you said? Okay, I will try to give you a very and brief answer first to this. Uh, 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 which, sorry, your last point about... Uh, sorry? Hmm. About, about the, yes, you know what always fascinates me more and more, and so that I don't only behind her back speak bad things about her. Judith Butler once said a nice thing. She said that in our society today, where the reality of continued uh, patriarchal dominance is masked by the appearance of, but we are permissive, free individuals, and so on, that the first step of women's liberation is that you reject this politeness, is that your demand to the master is, please give me orders, treat me as a master. Don't bullshit me that we are equal, and so on, and so on. So I would say that uh, uh, what would fascinated me much more is Precisely, and that was my attraction in this uh, uh, human capital and so on and so on. Isn't it much more subversive to claim, yes, I am just a human capital, please treat me, you know, to bring this position to its, to its absurd point. Not, not just to... Uh, not, uh, because, uh, again, okay, I'll ask you, then I will return the question. Okay, now, now I'm not in a shape to go, I admit it, I didn't answer it, but you know what, uh, uh, for example, when you mention this, uh, 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 the subject and so on and so on, but does not only Miller, but even Lacan in his theory, okay, he says, uh, Sometimes Miller speaks like, you know, psychoanalytic discourse, uh, discourse sorry, uh, resist capitalism and so on and so on. But then the only example he gives is uh, the saint. Concrete. Now, saint is, of course, the, the object, the reject of the system and so on and so on. And my problem is precisely... Uh, Again, this is the political conflict, as far as I can see. Maybe you know more than me here. Uh, Miller's position, at least, and Laurent did follow here this line, as far as I know, is that, uh, for example, I know that there is a big polemic going on now in Latin America, where Miller, as part of this, what is his vo uh, Voltaire title, uh, Zadig movement, no? Uh, that the whole target is those who want to politicize psychoanalysis, some of my followers, claiming that, and it's a very, na to, to, to me it seems a very naive argument, it's that if you promote radical social change, this means, and I literally read this argument, this means you create conditions of social disorder. 
And in the conditions of social disorder, psychoanalysis cannot be practiced regularly. Because it's a confusion, so that's why we should... And so, so I, uh, like, okay, I'll put it in this way. Where, uh, you know, in, in what sense, even although Lacan has often, even in his very last year, adopted this anti-capitalist rhetoric and so on and so on, but what does this amount to? What does this effectively amount to? Because nonetheless, again, as I already said here a couple of times, Miller's official position is politics as such is a domain of identifications. Imaginary. Sorry? Imaginary, Imaginary, symbolic, fictions, and so on and so on. So, you know, this is for me, again, what I yesterday was targeting at as a, a position which is, uh, which is a little bit too cynical. Too cynical for me. So again, when you say event, who is event? Is Macron event, my God? Miller engaged in Macron. Just in, I think I have to, uh, I have to jump to a moment here in London, the year Who? Jean-Claude Milner. I have Jean-Claude Milner, yeah. Um, in relation to that kind of infinite, the bad infinite of capital. Yeah. Um, and what would it mean to introduce a limit? And he said, sublimation. So an act of sublimation indexed to the death drive, which allows a destruction creation at zero, and that brings us back to the activity. I tend to, again, I tend to agree in principle with you, but again, it's so primitive what I will say now. Can you even imagine of how to translate this beautiful formula, act of creation ex nihilo, act of sublimation, death drive, into politics? What would give me an example? Just imagine it. What would this have meant? Is where did it happen? Did it happen with Syriza? When you started, um, sorry. When you started speaking today, you you talked about freedom. What does freedom mean? And you said freedom is not to do what you want, but to be free from doing, wanting to do what you want. That's sublimation. I'm just throwing it back to something you said at the beginning of your discourse today. To be free from wanting to do exactly what you want when you want is in itself a sublimation. To be free from that is freedom. Yeah, but nonetheless, I would here add something which may sound totalitarian, but it's not. Uh, I think when you said to be free to do what you want. But I think psychoanalysis is here a little bit more severe and assumes the right to judge what do you really want. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't trust what you want. That's the more of true freedom for me. Freedom is not just do what you want. How do you know what do you want? How do you know what you want is what you really want? That's my polemics that I went with Jordan Peterson and one of the points where we agreed even about happiness. Uh, happiness is not getting what you want. This is a nightmare as a rule. Happiness is cheating. Happiness, I dream about that, but don't come too close to me and so on, you know. That's why the ultimate formula of shock for me, I used years ago, I'm sorry if some of you know it, of this, uh, how happiness is not to get directly what you want. Did you see, but it's not a great movie, Day for Night, American Night of uh, Trifo, where it's oh, a yeah. side plot. 
uh, a cameraman and a girl that I don't know, two mm-hmm. guys with a bat. He wants to seduce her and they are driving to the city, the car breaks down. So they go there to rest a little bit and he starts telling her, oh my God, listen, now nobody is here, could we do it maybe quickly and so on, no? And she said, yes, why not? And starts to unbutton her trousers, no? And she's totally, "Ah, just like that, what do you mean? And so on, you know? Uh, For me, uh, uh, and this is for me uh, the catch in Lacan's Ne pas don't compromise your desire. I mean, in our daily lives, we don't really want what we think we want. We play, that's why, even, I will give you now a political example. Even some people close to Corbyn told me here that when, in the last election, they won, but almost won. Many of them privately said, maybe this is the best thing that could have happened. Just imagine if we were simply to win all the troubles and so on and so on. That's what I hate in the, this notion of fake happiness or whatever, you know. This, I, uh, happiness is that you almost get what you want, but not quite, and so on and so on. And, and the great thing about psychoanalysis, with all my troubles in my analysis, what I got from it, I hope so, is that I learn to confront whenever I think I want something, do I really want that? And heroism is for me at least to, uh, to, to assume that, you know. Don't kill me, I am getting okay, no, it's, ill, it's four o'clock. but please uh, let's go on and let's ple- I would love to go on more seriously because I will address all this Erebus together. In, uh, I will address it, but you know... Okay, so there's lots of this software under the heaven. No end of this software. And uh, yeah. when you come back in July, you can tell us how to activate it into a political program as well as uh, sublimating individual acts. But, no, like John but, but just to answer... But no, my basic idea is very common sense. I hope you agree. First, happiness has to be structurally, to be real... What uh, rational theory, rational choice theorists call a state that is necessarily a byproduct. It has, you know, it's the same that Lacan says, I think, about analytic cure. You don't try to cure it. It happens as a byproduct. But we've moved on from happiness. We're looking for communism. That's the question. I can guarantee yeah, you, listen, whatever bit. communism will be, don't worry, it will not be happiness. So you I can, agree. <laughs>